Welcome to the LifePoint Palm Bay Sermon Podcast. We encourage you to make copies of this message, but please don't charge for those copies. If you'd like to know more about LifePoint Palm Bay, please visit lifepointpb.com. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, we continue in this series, Custom-Made Calling. This morning, the message is... Give thanks, intercede for more. Give thanks, intercede for more. Um, the Apostle Paul is laying something out very interesting here as we go. We have just finished verses 3 through 14, this truckload of theological truth that Paul has, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just poured out. And, and it's good. It's rich. I mean, there's so much there. I mean, we could spend weeks and weeks, months just going through and dissecting all of that. But then he gets to, to verse 15, and he changes gears a little bit. But the two really do fit together. You'll see that in the very first words that he gives. For this reason, all right, for what reason? For all that he's laid out in verses 3 through 14. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, again, if you mark in your Bible or whatever, you might mark that. Faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. If you want to see true Christianity, you want to know what it is, there it is. It's the fact that you trust Jesus, not just one time for salvation, but every single day, like Kathy's testimony. I trust you, Lord. I can't necessarily trust Haiti or what's going on down there or the government or, or a million other things, but I trust you. Faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. You want to see Christianity expressed, you won't find it expressed more clearly than in that verse. Faith, trust in Jesus Christ, and love for the saints. He goes on, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Again, if you, if you write in your Bible, you could take an arrow from the first part of that, I do not cease to give thanks, and take an arrow and have it point back up to the previous point where he says, because I've heard of your faith and your love toward the saints, he's giving thanks for that. He's being reminded of how they have trusted the Lord. And again, we're not talking about salvation. He's already, he's already spoken about that earlier in this passage. He says, you're trusting the Lord. As a matter of fact, if you look at this in the Greek language, he's literally talking about an ongoing daily trust. I'm trusting, I he says, I'm thanking God for the way that you demonstrate how you trust him day by day by day. Not just a one-time event. And I'm also thankful for the way that you love one another. So that, that do not cease to give thanks goes back toward that. Remembering you in my prayers would be an arrow going down to verse 17 and what follows. Notice what he says. That the God, here's, what I'm, here's how he's praying. Here's what he's remembering to pray. And by the way, the idea of remembering, this wasn't a one-time, it wasn't a sh one shot in the dark. He keeps praying this. The Spirit's stirring something in him. And he, when he thinks of the Ephesians, he's praying this way. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. I love the way he says that. Why does he say it that way? He's reminding them Jesus did this very thing. Remember Jesus when he was here on earth? He prayed to the Father. He cried out to him. He listened he responded to what he heard the Father saying. In the same way he's saying, Ephesians, life pointers, wherever you happen to be as a believer, he says, this is true for you. As it was true for Jesus, it's true for you. You can cry out to the Father. And he hears. He listens. He's, he moves. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, let's stop there just for a second. That he may give you the spirit of wisdom. Now, in the ESV, which is what's on the screen, spirit is capitalized, capital S, referring to the Holy Spirit. Some of your translations may have a lowercase s. It doesn't have it capitalized. Does anybody have a translation that has a lowercase s? Yes, a number of you have a lowercase s. You know why? Because the word pneuma here can be translated Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, or the spirit of man, or other spirits. It can be used in different ways. And so often what a translator is trying to do is find out the context. 
What is the context of the passage? It helps us understand how it's used in this particular case. The problem is, if you try to go either or, it's difficult to translate. And that's the reason some translators go with capital S, some translators goes, goes with a small s. I believe both are accurate. Both are right. The Holy Spirit indwells our human spirit. And then he begins to do what Paul is praying for right here. He says that he may give you the spirit. It's not multiple spirits. It's not, okay, there's the spirit of wisdom and there's the spirit of revelation. There's, no, it's one Holy Spirit manifesting himself differently in multiple dimensions in your life. By the way, we have an example of this. If you want to turn, I didn't give them the scripture, but if you want to look at it, if you go over to Isaiah, over in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 11, this is a part of the Messianic's a messianic passage chapter 9 of isaiah is very familiar we hear it at christmas every year where it talks about jesus and mighty counselor wonderful god mighty counselor we we these passages that we're familiar with chapter 11 it's continuing on chapter 10 continues on about jesus messiah chapter 11 does but notice the beginning of chapter 11 there shall come forth from a shoot from the stump of jesse in other words out of the house of david which we know jesus did a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the Spirit, notice there, capital S, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. That happened literally with Jesus when he was baptized. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. It's not six spirits. It's one Holy Spirit manifesting himself in wisdom and understanding and counsel and might. So what is Paul saying? He's saying, I'm praying for you that the Holy Spirit that resides in you working through your spirit will produce these different things. One is wisdom, the other is revelation. What's the difference? Wisdom, the Greek word Sophia. And it literally means God's knowledge and will applied practically in present situations. That's what it is. It's God's knowledge, his truth, his will applied practically in present situations. One of the best examples we have of this in scripture is King Solomon over in 1 Kings chapter 3. And you can read it later, but the reference is there. It's the story of these two women and they have two children and they're sleeping in the bed. They're in the same bed and they have their children with them. And one of the mothers accidentally rolls over on her child during the night during the night and smothers the child kills the child she wakes up realizes the child is dead so she switches the children she takes the live child from the woman sitting next to her or sleeping next to her and replaces it with her dead child and in the morning the mother of the the live child realizes that's my child not this one and so there is obviously this altercation that ensues between these two women now i'm sure i'm pretty sure that this didn't start with Solomon. They didn't immediately bring this situation to the king of Israel. My guess is it started before, long before Solomon. There were other people. They brought it trying to get someone to resolve this. But you've got these two mothers both making claim to the same child. How do you know? And it's not like today. I mean, today you would have known because there would have been pictures all over social media, okay? And you'd be able to figure it out. They didn't have all that. So how do you know whose child this is? Could be her child, could be her child. Both of them are claiming it's their child and saying, no, it's... And so all this... And I can imagine some of these judges, one of these, you know, someone who's a lower position than King Solomon, they're thinking, they're scratching their head. How do we determine? I don't know. How do we figure out whose child it is? Somehow, eventually, this situation gets to Solomon. It makes it all the way up the chain, and it gets to Solomon. And they bring him in, thinking Solomon has all this wisdom from God. Maybe he can figure it out. Solomon takes knowledge that he already had. Knowledge of what? Knowledge of human nature. What did he know about human nature? He knows that human nature is, by its very essence, selfish and self-centered. We are selfish and self-centered. I know people sometimes react to that when I say that, and then I ask them, have you ever had a child or taken care of a child? If you have, I rest my case. We are naturally that way. Solomon understands this, so how does he use that in a practical way in this situation? 
There's, Solomon understands, and this is where wisdom comes in. He understands there is one force on planet Earth that overcomes our natural tendency to selfishness and being self-centered. You know what that one force is? The love of God. It is the one thing on the planet that overcomes that. It's the one thing, this love that God gives is the one thing that causes us to be willing to sacrifice our own self-interest for the sake of someone else. So Solomon asks a legitimate, or he makes a statement. He says, you know what? Bring me a sword. What's he going to do? Cut the child in half and give each of them half. That'll be fair and equitable. One of the women says, yeah, you know what? That's right. If, if, we, if I can't have it, then just cut the, we'll each get a half. The other immediately speaks up and says, no. And you know what she's saying? It's not in the scripture, but you know what she's saying? She's saying, I'd rather live without my child than my child not live. Solomon says, there's the mother. There's the mother. Give the child to her. See, that's wisdom. And the scripture says that Solomon prayed for wisdom and understanding. That's wisdom. That is the truth of God and just the truth about life that God gives in a moment with practical application. I'll tell you, when you see that, when you experience that, when God does that, when you ask him and you see him do that, you know you didn't do it. I've had situations where I'm talking with someone and God gives a thought, he gives an answer, and you realize, hey, that's not mine. But it's very practical in this situation. And you stop and you thank God. God, thank you for that wisdom. Paul is saying, I pray that you have a spirit of wisdom, that you know how to take the truth of God and apply it in practical ways in your daily life and in the lives of others. But you got to ask for it. See, the thing that stands out to me in this, Paul is not just assuming that because Jesus died for them, because they have been born again, because they have been sealed by the Spirit, because they are joint heirs with Jesus and they, are in, they have an inheritance, and all the things that he listed in 3 through 14, he does not assume that they naturally have a spirit of wisdom and revelation. He prays for it. I want to tell you sometimes, folks, there is much that is ours that we don't have because it goes unappropriated, because we never ask for it. We never pray for it. My dad took one last trip before he died. He didn't know he was dying, I don't think, at the time, although I think he did know he was sick. And he drove cross-country, and he would send postcards along the way of places he stopped and things he saw, things that really stood out to him. And one of those places was Hearst Mansion out in California, a place that he went as he made it across and then drove down from Washington State all the way down the coast and back out east. And he was very impressed with Hearst Mansion and all. There's an amazing story about William Randolph Hearst. He was a great art collector, and there was a particular painter that he really loved. And he wanted, he realized in looking through some material, reading something, that there was a series of paintings that this painter had, and he had to have them in his collection. And so he sent a representative all over the world looking for these paintings procure them, bring them back, put them in his collection. After months of searching and looking, <laughs> this person came back and told Mr. Hurst, he said, I found them. Great, where are they and how much they cost? He said, they don't cost a thing. They're in a warehouse that you already own. They were his all along. He just hadn't appropriated it. He hadn't taken advantage of it. Often you and I do that in our Christian life. There are things that are already ours that are promised to us, that are our inheritance, our birthright, and they go unutilized because we simply don't pray. We don't ask. Paul says, I pray that you'd have a spirit of wisdom and a spirit of revelation. Revelation is different than wisdom. Revelation is insight. It is revealing. It is the curtain being pulled back. It's like a magic trick when they show you how it actually took place. You can see the trick. You can see the result of it, but how did they actually do it? I love that when they have those shows where they show you how they actually did it. Now, some of you say, well, that takes all the fun out of it, but to me, I like to know how they did it. 
This is revelation. It's pulling the curtain back so that you can see what you couldn't see before. One of the great examples in Scripture of this are the two guys who are on the road to Emmaus after Jesus died and is buried and rose again. Remember that they're walking from Jerusalem back to Emmaus? Jesus comes up to them and starts walking with them, but they don't know it's Jesus. The Scripture says they didn't recognize him. And so they're talking about all that's going on, and Jesus said, what's going on? I mean, again, this is my paraphrase. Um, what's going on? And they said, have you been on another planet or under a rock or something? Have you not heard what's gone on the last few days about Jesus of Nazareth? And he claimed to be the son of God. And then they brought him in and they tried him and then they killed him. And, you know, then they put him in a grave. And now they say he's risen, but some say, no, they stole his body. And we don't, you know, all of this, is, all this rumor is going around. This is big news. And it says that Jesus began, starting with Moses and the prophets, he began to go through and reveal himself to them in these stories. Now, these were not unknown stories to these guys. These were Jewish guys. They'd heard about Moses and the prophets their whole life. They had to study it when they were kids. They knew these stories. This wasn't new information for them. But what happens when Jesus gets to the, they get to the end, they get to Emmaus, and Jesus reveals himself and then disappears. And what do they say? Did not our hearts burn within us? These old stories came alive. They came alive. Why? Because of revelation. Because Jesus, I'll tell you where revelation happens. Revelation happens with things that we either already know or don't know. It could be either one. But if we already know it, Jesus comes in and he reveals himself in it and allows us to see it. And it's internal and it's like turning on the light. Have you ever had that experience? You're reading the scripture or you're listening to something or you're talking to someone and all of a sudden there is just, it's like the light comes on and it stirs within you and you get so excited about it. As a matter of fact, you get so excited and you go to tell somebody else. I've done this before with Lori. In fact, she's my guinea pig often for all of this. And so I go to her and I'm so excited because there's been revelation, there's been illumination and I'm all excited and I'm telling her and she goes, that's really good. And let me wait wait no it's better than really good this is incredible and she's like yeah yeah i got some get dishes to do or whatever you know and and i'm thinking what's her problem she doesn't have a problem she just doesn't have illumination not in that moment for that thing it was illuminated to me and sometimes that happens to you and you get really outdone with people because you're so excited and they don't see it quite the same way they hear you they understand what you're saying but there's not illumination. But when illumination comes, when revelation comes, when the curtain is pulled back and you can see what's taking place, your heart burns within you. It does something within. Paul says, it's not enough for you to have all this theological truth that I've already laid out for you. It's not enough. Now before some of you stone me as a heretic, I'm going to tell you, that's what Paul is saying. That's what he's demonstrating for us here. That the theological truth by itself is not enough. If you've grown up in a church tradition that emphasized just the information alone, you only have half of the equation. It's not a bad half. There's nothing wrong with it. We need it but it's not enough. Paul says, I pray. Regularly, I'm praying that the Spirit would illuminate and would manifest himself in wisdom, practical application of spiritual truth, and in revelation, allowing you to see what you didn't see before, the depth of it in a way you did not see it. This has happened to me in a number of things that are such a big part of our church when God began to open my eyes about different things that I thought I knew about. I remember when he did that about the whole issue of grace. I thought I knew what grace was. I understood grace. I didn't have a clue what grace was. I'm still learning what grace is. I'm still overwhelmed. If 
When you, your understanding of grace right now today, if it's not so incredible that it blows your mind and seems too good to be true, you don't have a clue what grace is. You don't have a clue. Because when the Spirit begins to reveal it to you, you'll understand it is so incredible and beyond our imagination and makes absolutely no sense, humanly speaking. When you begin to think this is too good to be true, then you're beginning to understand what grace is. This is what happened to John Newton. That's why he wrote Amazing Grace. When it really, when the revelation hit him, when God showed him what grace really was, what it really is, he couldn't help but express it. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The Lord did the same thing with me about with the Holy Spirit. Who's the Holy Spirit? I didn't know. Even when it came to his word, the difference between just studying his word, learning about it, or having him reveal it to me, it's different. It's a whole different thing. It's my prayer for my kids, and for your kids too, by the way, when I pray for them. My kids have grown up in church. They don't know anything else. They spent a good part of their academic career in Christian schools. They know this stuff. They could probably win a lot of Bible trivia. But I don't care about that. I mean, I care, but I don't. My prayer for them, and I've told them, my prayer for them is revelation. That's my prayer. That God would manifest himself in a real way to them. God doesn't have grandchildren. He only has children. You and I can have grandchildren. He doesn't. Every generation must respond, must know him for themselves. Spirit of wisdom and revelation. He goes on, having the eyes of your hearts. I like that translation. Some say heart. This one says hearts. The reason, again, they use that is because the Greek, it's not just, it's not the heart. This is not the word cardia that's used here, by the way, which we're, where we get cardiac when we think of the physical heart. This is literally when used in Scripture, it's talking about the way we think, what we want, our desire, our volition, how we feel, our emotions. He's saying, enlighten, illuminate the eyes of their mind, their will, their emotions do something within that they can't just get from study alone from listening to preaching alone do something within that illuminates that stirs that causes the heart to burn that opens the eyes to see you remember when you got saved you remember that how do you remember when you got saved you can remember that you remember how your eyes were opened how in just a moment, you went from not seeing to seeing, from not understanding to understanding. Just in a moment, it was like, oh, I see it. it I, I get it. It's, it's there. It's clearer. It wasn't, it wasn't how great the evangelist was or the preacher was or the teacher. It didn't have anything to do with that. It was the Spirit illuminating the scripture says that none of us come unless the Spirit draws. He opened the eyes of our mind and of our will, of our emotions. He did that. And Paul's praying, I want him to do that in you. That's why he's praying for the Ephesians. I don't want to just give you all this truth. I want the Spirit to open your eyes that you may know. Now, this is important because these three things Paul says I want you to know, I don't believe you can know them unless the Spirit shows them to you. Oh, you can read them, but you won't really know them. By the word, the word know here, in Greek often they use the word gnosko. Um, our, our gnosis, gnostic comes from that word. This word is a strengthened form of it, and it means more than just a, a casual knowledge of. This means you know it to the point that you're all in, you experience it, you do something about it. It's kind of the idea if you handed me a bottle of water and I started to take a drink and you said, oh, by the way, I put arsenic in that and I spit it all out, and I quit. That's this word here. That's that kind of knowing. If you tell me you put arsenic in it, and I just keep on drinking, I don't really know much of anything. 
But he says, this is a word that says you have not only intellectual understanding of it, but it goes so deep that it changes how you act, how you live, what you do. He says that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. That's the whole thing as we go through this series. You have a calling that you would know the hope to which he has called you. It's not a hope so out there, I'm hoping it will happen. No, he says he wants you to know because he has called you, because of what he has done for you, because of how he feels about you, you have hope. It isn't I'm hoping for something that maybe will happen. It's no, he's already done it and I have hope because of it. Look at the next one. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, earlier in this passage, we talked about the inheritance we have in him. What's our inheritance? That's not what he's talking about here. Notice what it says. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance? It's his inheritance. His glorious inheritance in the saints. What's his glorious inheritance? You and me. We're his inheritance. I love the way, I can't remember who said it. Um, problem. When you have lots of things that you remember, but you don't remember all of it. Um, I can't remember who said this, but I love it. Our inheritance is God. His inheritance is us. That's how he feels about you. He gets excited about that. We are his inheritance. Can you imagine that your life would be different if you had revelation of that? That you would live differently if you really believed that? That, that God feels that way about you? That he's your inheritance? How excited would you be if you found out you had a long-lost uncle who just died and left you a billion dollars? How excited would you be? Some of you would, you'd be calling work this afternoon. I'm not coming back. I know, I'm not coming back. Which, by the way, I would not recommend at all. Man, we'd be excited. We'd be thrilled. We'd think, wow, I can't imagine this. This is unimaginable, unbelievable. you to picture the fact that Jesus feels that way about you. You're my inheritance. You're mine. He bought us with a price, redeemed us, made us his, because you're my inheritance. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? In other words, you cannot measure, you cannot comprehend, you cannot even begin to fathom the power that is available to us because we believe. He says, these three things I'm praying that the Spirit's going to illuminate so that you will understand, you will know these things experientially. And I know that it doesn't say this directly, but I believe it infers it, that without the Holy Spirit revealing, you won't know it. You may intellectually read that and think, okay, I get it, yeah. You might memorize it and be able to quote it back, but you won't know it unless he reveals it to you. Now, let's try to make this practical. It is practical. Let's try to make it where we can understand it that way, how we can use it this week. It's changed, as I've been working through the book of Ephesians, it's changed the way I pray. By the way, that would be my first most important point to you. If you don't pray, you're missing out. You say, well, Troy, sure, I pray. I'm a Christian. All Christians pray. I don't believe that. Oh, I mean, I know we pray when we're in trouble. I don't know what to do. I've done everything I know to do. I've called all the people. I've called all my friends. I've checked with the family. I've done everything I know to do. I don't have any other options, so I'll pray. That's not what I'm talking about. Even lost people do that. No, this intimate part of your life that is always present, it's always there. There's never a time when you're not a breath away from prayer. 
You say, well, what do you mean by that? Because I don't have to stop and come kneel down here at the altar to pray. I can talk to him anytime, anywhere, and I can listen anytime, anywhere. I can communicate with him. So my challenge to you this morning is, do you pray? The Lord's disciples walked with Jesus for three and a half years. The only account that I'm aware of where they come to him and ask him to teach them anything. Now, he taught them a lot of stuff, but we don't have an account of them asking for that teaching. The only thing that we have a record of that I can remember and I'm aware of is when they came to him and said, Master, teach us to pray. They watched him pray. They saw it, how big a part of his life it was, that it was the foundation of everything that he did in ministry and in life. And they said, teach us to pray. We have what we call the Lord's Prayer or the model prayer because of it. That might be a good place to start if prayer is not a big deal in your life and you don't even really have a desire for it. You might just start to say, Jesus, teach me to pray. Teach me to pray. The way you pray, teach me to pray. As we pray... Paul gives us a pattern here. I want you to see it. It's back in verse 16, I believe. He says, I give thanks and I make mention. Don't miss it. There's two things there. I give thanks and I make mention. What is he giving thanks for? We already talked about it. The faith, the way you trust Jesus, and the way you love the saints, the way you love other people. I give thanks for those things. Then I make mention. What am I making mention of? The revelation, the wisdom, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, the illumination of, the, of your heart so that you know these three things. That's what I'm praying for. That's what I'm remembering to pray for. So there's two parts to this. I'm thanking God because of what he's already done in your life. I'm thanking him for that. And now I'm praying for him to do more. That's the reason the title of today's message is giving thanks interceding for more now here's the challenge that you and I have I have it I'm assuming you have it if you're you know like art who never messed up singing a song then maybe you don't have this problem but I have it I'm guessing most of you have it that when I'm really struggling with another person I find it very difficult to, to find anything to give thanks about them for Matter of fact, I find it very difficult to find anything that they've ever done right in their life. Anybody else like that? It, I, I'm consumed with what they're doing wrong, in my opinion. But I can't for the life of me figure out anything good they've ever done. Now, maybe I'm overstating that just a tad, but I don't think by much. Because that's what our heart does. What is Paul saying? He's saying... By the way, were the Ephesians perfect? Not by a long stretch, okay? I mean, he didn't call them out quite as much as he did the church at Corinth, but there was some, a lot of stuff at the church of Ephesus. It was, matter of fact, it ranked right up there with Corinth as far as the wicked, you know, the, wick, the most wicked place in, I started to say the wickedest, but the most wicked place in Asia Minor, right there with Corinth. As a matter of fact, Scripture tells us in all the churches, we don't have a record of this, but at Ephesus, they were so, there was so much occult activity and worshiping demons and idols and all that kind of stuff that the new believers brought all of the things that they used in their worship of the occult and burned it all, and it tells us how much it was worth. Now, we don't have that record of any other church. So it wasn't that these guys were perfect. It wasn't they had it all together. They had their stuff. They had their issues. But Paul was able to give thanks for the faith that they had, the way they were trusting Jesus on a daily basis, and the way that they loved other people. You may have to ask him to give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation when you're praying for someone so you can see that. Do you think your prayer life would look differently if you took that person right now that quite honestly you're not bitter at or unforgiving but you'd rather not spend the afternoon with them? 
know who I'm talking about. You say, well, Troy, you just don't know. I don't know, and I don't want to know. You say, well, they did. I get it. They're bad. I get it. Challenge is, because of the enemy is so good at what he does, we don't recognize that we're right there along with him. We don't see our stuff. I can see theirs, but I don't see mine. Could you take that person and bring and say, Lord, give me the ability to see where they've had faith in you and where they have cared about other people. Give me the ability to see that. Because I want to thank you for that. Before I go any further, I want to thank you for that. They may not be expressing it towards you at the moment, but, but they have expressed it. Give thanks. Then move into, okay, Lord, now I'm praying for them. Give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Let them enlighten the eyes of their heart. Let them see these things. And Lord, while you're doing it for them, do it for me too, because I need it just as much. What about people that you're not upset with? We're all doing okay. Now, this has changed the way I pray in, in recent weeks as I've been going through Ephesians. Even before I come in here, because I realize it's not the teaching that's going to bring transformation. I'd like to think it does, and in my younger days, I believe that. That doesn't mean I don't work hard at it. I do work hard at it. I want to be diligent, but I recognize it's not the teaching that transforms. Spirit that transforms when he gives illumination. He does that. I want you to ask him to do that. Ask him to do that for your brothers and sisters. Ask him to do that for those who don't believe. I heard somebody praying as we were praying this morning, and they were praying for lost people. Their tendency to get irritated with lost people because they don't believe. And we've been there. We want it so badly for them. It's like, why can't you see this? They can't see it because they don't see it. And they're not going to see it by you being irritated or trying to force feed them and cram it down their throat. They will see it because the Spirit illuminates their heart to be able to see it. So we pray for that. We ask for that. believe that God will do that how much time do you spend praying for physical needs again nothing wrong with that and how much time do you spend praying like this God do something in their inner person change the way they see change how they perceive give them wisdom and revelation how often do you pray for yourself that way or do Lord I'm in need today. Again, nothing wrong. He taught us to bring our needs to him. Just go deeper. Go further than that. And you can use this constantly. Yesterday, I wasn't feeling, physically, I wasn't feeling great. And normally I feel great. Normally I don't, I don't, I rarely ever feel bad. In my whole life, I rarely ever felt bad. Some of you thinking, wow, you should have my life. And I know, some of you have horror stories. But it's not common for me. And yesterday, I didn't feel great. It felt like something was just off. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm, I'm self-diagnosing, which we do, you know. And then you go on the Internet, and boy, you've got every disease in the world once you go on the Internet. You didn't know how bad off you were until you go on there. I wonder you're still breathing. And then you get anxious. I started getting anxious. And I'm not prone to be anxious. And all of these things. And I find myself sitting there thinking, okay, what do I do? Should I, you know, start thinking, you know, should I call the doctor? Should I, well, what should I do in all this? And the Lord reminded me, he said, what are you preaching tomorrow? Oh, yeah, about prayer. Oh, okay. Lord, would you, give me a, would you give me wisdom and revelation? Would you enlighten the eyes of my heart? Would you cause me to see deeper than just the physical symptom or the need that I might be having? You know what he did? He did exactly what I asked him to do. 
and I sat there and he brought a piece. For a while I was up. Lori had already gone to bed. She was asleep. I'm still sitting there trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do. And I begin to pray. And the Lord brings peace and rest. And he said, just trust me. Hey, Lord, I trust you. How do I demonstrate that I trust you? Because Paul saw action in their life that demonstrated they trusted Jesus. So, Lord, how do I demonstrate that I trust you right now? And the Holy Spirit very clearly said, go to bed, go sleep. By the way, it is often in our life one of the greatest evidences that we trust him. Because David said, even as I sleep, you protect me. You provide for me. What is the first thing the enemy often robs us of? When we're worried and afraid, when we're, when we're believing lies, he robs us of sleep. Went and lay down, went to sleep. Woke up this morning and felt better. Say, what was that? I don't know. I don't need to know. All I need is a spirit of wisdom and revelation. I'm going to ask Lori to come up and begin to play. As she does that, I want to tell you a story. I close this morning. Back in the middle 1800s, 1840s, 1850s, there was a Presbyterian pastor in Illinois. And he had a real burden to see people evangelized and, and missions, for evangelism and mission. He had a real burden for that. And he prayed. He was pastoring a local place and, of course, evangelizing and, and, and reaching people where he could in the local place that God had called him. But he had a heart for more. He had a heart for the whole world. And so he, he was a man of prayer, and he prayed. And he began to pray. He felt the Spirit leading him. He began to pray, God, would you raise up men and women who would go? You've called me here. You've not given me the freedom to go, but would you raise up others who will go? He didn't know that the answer to his prayer, part of the answer to his prayer would be his son. So his son, Edward, went to Bible college and seminary, graduated. Going out on mission, he went to Montana, which in the 1880s was like going to a foreign country. And he's sharing the gospel, and he's ministering, and he catches the fever, and he dies there. And he had a younger brother named John, and John was in school at the time and wondered if God might be stirring in him to take his brother's place in answer to his father's prayer. Came to the place and conclusion that God was stirring him to go. Not just to go, but to go to India. That was the place he felt like God was saying, I want you to go. Gave him a burden for India. In 1892, John boarded a steamer headed to India missionary as a young man before he left he was handed a letter by a friend another Christian he said John I'm praying for you I'm praying for the salvation of souls I'm praying for Christians hearts to be revived I'm all the whole list of things but he said I'm also praying that you be full of the Holy Spirit and his power as you go well that kind of offended John because he thought he was full of the Holy Spirit and his power he thought, I'm saved. I've got the Holy Spirit. I'm good. And it bothered him. But he had a long boat ride to sort it out. Because it took weeks to make the trip. And he began to pray. And in his praying, the Lord brought him to a, just humbled him. That you don't understand. You don't just need the Holy Spirit to get saved. You need the Holy Spirit for power now that you are saved. You need his work in you. You can go share the gospel. How many of you in here right now feel pretty confident that you understand the mechanics of the gospel message? You could share the gospel message with somebody if you had to. You understand the mechanics of that, all right? That's most everybody in here, and I don't doubt that. That's not enough. Just the mechanics of it. It has to be endued with power. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. So, 
John's dealing with the Lord and he began to pray. He said, Lord, fill me, baptize me, anoint me with your spirit. Empower me for service. He said, something happened on that boat. I could, I could sense within something was different in me. Part of what was different for him was this stirring, this new desire to pray. He would spend hours in prayer. Sometimes days in prayer. He would get, he'd be praying, he'd forget to eat, forget to sleep. So you're thinking, I've never prayed like that. I don't know that I have either, but you know. But God was stirring in him. He gets to India and begins working and serving there and there's a decision among Christians there that they're going to hold this conference, this crusade, if you will, in this place, which is now part of Pakistan, but at the time was part of India. And John felt prompted, he and a couple other men, to spend 30 days prior to that gathering. They spent 30 days in prayer, day and night in prayer. For 30 days, praying. Even after it began, they had these prayer tents, and when John wasn't speaking, he was in there praying. God began to move. John is quoted as saying, and you may have heard this quote, he prayed and he often prayed, Lord, give me souls lest I die. He began to pray during that meeting, Lord, give me one soul a day. And the Lord began to give one soul a day. He said, Lord, give two souls a day. I began to see two souls. Lord, give four souls a day. And it kept growing. Thousands coming to Christ. The impact, it is estimated, the impact of what God did and what he continued to do in the years after in that, in that area of Pakistan and India that millions were either brought to Christ or renewed in their faith of Christ. One day John was serving there in India and he came across a pastor, ran into a pastor he met who was by his description spiritually cold, lifeless. Have you ever been there? Have you ever read the word and it just seemed dry? Have you ever tried to pray and it seemed like you were talking to the ceiling? Have you ever felt like what I'm doing is more duty than it is passion. I'm just, I'm, I'm doing it because I'm supposed to do it. John comes across this pastor who seemed to be in that place. And he was, he was angry with him. He was upset with him. So he starts to pray and he goes, Lord, I'm going to pray for this pastor. He's spiritually cold and Lifeless and Lord, I pray for, and he started to say his name, and he said, It was like the Holy Spirit put his finger on my lips and would not let me speak. He stopped me. And he said, Then he convicted me, and he said, You're about to harshly judge a brother. And that is not what I've called you to do. He was under conviction. He began to cry out and repent. And he said, Lord, what, what should I do? And the Philippians 4.8 came to his mind. Whatsoever things are true, lovely, of good report. If there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Pray about these things. So John began to do that. And he didn't know this man well, but he began to ask the Lord to reveal to him. Give him a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Reveal to him what was praiseworthy, what was honorable. What was, where were evidence of faith in this man's life? And loving others. He began to pray those things. God gave him things. He began to pray those things. He began to give thanks for God's work in this man's life. And then the Spirit said, now I want you to pray for spirit of wisdom and revelation for this brother. I want you to pray that the eyes of his heart would be enlightened. I want you to pray this way. So he prayed. He found out years later, and he would relate this story, and he said, there are two things I learned from that. Number one, I learned that that pastor that I was praying for that God worked renewal and revival in his life at that very time. But he said, I learned something even more important. That I learned 
that God does not call me in prayer to judge my brother. He calls me to give thanks for the work of God in their life and to pray for a spirit of wisdom and revelation. It'll change your prayer life, I promise you. I can tell you from experience. It'll change the way you pray. It'll do more than that. It'll change you because it'll soften your heart. Graham Scroggy was a British pastor. He used to say, Thanksgiving is the foundation. Intercession is the superstructure going up. Do you understand what he's saying? Thanksgiving is, he said it another way, Thanksgiving is a praising God for what he's already done. Intercession is a belief in the promises of what God will do. be thanksgiver and interceder. I want to be both. That's what this passage is all about. More than just information. Sometimes I get frustrated with myself and with others and I realize what we need is more of the Spirit's illumination not more information. Lord, I ask you this morning Holy Spirit, illuminate our hearts Illuminate us Give us spirit of wisdom and revelation cause us to see what has previously been hidden and then give us wisdom to know how to apply what you've already shown us in practical right ways Lord do in me and in us what you did for those guys on the road to Emmaus cause our hearts to burn within us Lord, cause us to spend more time crying out this way because we really believe you. There is immeasurable power available to those of us who believe. Lord, cause us to believe. Lord, what a what a privilege that John Hyde had, that missionary to India. He became known as Praying Hyde. And you moved heaven and earth because John and others like him just believed you enough to pray. Lord, do that in this generation. Do that with us. Give us, give us wisdom and revelation.